Welcome to Understanding Christianity, a podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor of Old and New Testament, systematic theology, church history, and ethics at Colorado Christian University. Welcome to Understanding Christianity. On this podcast for today, we're going to be diving into the deep end of the pool. Uh, We're going to deal with a theological issue that really has a lot of opinions. There's a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of scholarly opinion. Uh, it's, It's pretty deep. And so from time to time, it's important to ask some very fundamental and deep questions about the nature of God and about the nature of man. Um, Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, in the very first paragraph, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, "The, the most important thing that we can truly understand and have wisdom about is, number one, the nature of God, and number two, the nature of ourselves. And so we need to think deeply about who God is, and we need to think deeply about who we are. And so in today's podcast, we are going to be asking a very difficult question. I want you to hang with me because uh, this may be new to you. This may challenge your thinking. This may cause you to scratch your head. But I want you to be a good Berean, as Acts 17 says, and I want you to go after this podcast or follow along with me and make sure that what I'm saying lines up with Scripture. Uh, We want to make sure that everything that we teach comes directly from God's holy word. And so as we deal with this subject today, it's very difficult, it's very deep, uh, some, some, some theological issues arise from it. And so let me just go ahead and, and ask the question, are there two wills in God? Or maybe to ask it a different way, does God have two ways of, of willing? That would be the question that we need to ask. Does God have two ways of of willing? Now, what I want to do is I want to address two passages of Scripture that at first glance appear that God desires for all people to be saved. And so when we talk about divine election, when we talk about God choosing some for salvation and the others leaving to their own sin, we have to deal with these passages that basically classic Arminians and others would say these are passages that teach that God has a desire or God has a will that all people be saved. And so let's look first of all at 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1. 1 through 6. Paul is writing to Timothy, and here's what he says. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now let's just look closely at this passage of Scripture. Paul is urging that we pray and make intercession for all types of people. And in this passage of Scripture, Paul qualifies what those all people are. In verse 2, he says kings and those in high positions. So he gives somewhat of a qualifier of who all people are. And so we can look at this and say all types of people, kings, those are in high positions, um, all types of people, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. And he says this is good, it's pleasing to God, who desires all people to be saved. So here we have a passage of scripture that says God has a will. God has a desire that all people be saved, which should lead you to ask a fundamental question. If God desires all people to be saved, and yet not all people are saved, then does God get what he wants? 
Is God's will somehow frustrated? Is there a desire or a will of God that is not accomplished? Because obviously, not all people are saved. And so you have to wrestle with that question. And we'll wrestle with that in just a moment. But I wanted to bring up this passage of Scripture to show you that there is a tension in the Scripture where it seems to be that God desires something or God wills something, and what God wills does not actually happen. How do we, how do we handle that? A second passage of Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Peter writes, Do not... Overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Very famous passage of Scripture talking about God's patience toward people and wanting and desiring for people to be saved and not perish and come to repentance. Now, I would argue textually and contextually that Peter is specifically mentioning the elect of God. Because if you follow his flow of thought in this passage, he initially is addressing God's elect people. And when he's talking about you, he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. He's talking about those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, that God does not want any of his elect to perish, but them to come to repentance. But let's say you don't buy that. Let's say that you look at this passage of Scripture and you look at the all, meaning God has a desire for every single person to be saved. Every single person to come to repentance. God desires all people to be saved. In both these passages, in the first Timothy and in the second Peter, you've got a verse that said God desires all people to be saved. God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. So, the scripture seems to affirm that God wills or desires or wishes all people to be saved. That's, that's a desire of God. And yet, we know from the scripture that not all people are saved. So in a sense, God wills or God desires or God wishes something that does not come to pass. So the question then is, are there two wills in God? Or does God have two ways of willing? Now let's just talk about how this has been defined throughout church history. Throughout church history, Christians have affirmed that there are two wills of God. One is called his moral will, or his will of command. Now, this will of God is clearly expressed in God's moral law. When you think about the Ten Commandments, that is God's will for humanity. God has clearly expressed it. It's His command. It's written in Scripture. It's revealed to us in the Bible. It's what God desires morally from His creatures. That's God's will, His moral will, His will of command, what God has commanded that He desires for people to follow. Now, God's moral will can and is often rejected. It's not fulfilled by his creature. So, in a sense, God wills something that doesn't come about. In his moral will, God lays out the Ten Commandments, or God lays out commands in Scripture, and God reveals his will. But we know that there are lost people all throughout the world that aren't obeying God's will, and even, even saved people. So, in a sense, you can say that God's will of command, or God's moral will, what God desires is not fulfilled because sinful human beings are not doing that. Now we see some examples of this in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 7, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Some famous words of Christ. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
on that final day of judgment, there will be many who will try to appeal to uh, the Lord and say, listen, I did all these things, and, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. And why do they not get into heaven? Because they did not do the will of God, in a sense that they, they weren't saved. And so, Jesus clearly says that there are going to be those on the day of judgment that don't get into heaven because they did not obey the will of God. So, in a sense, God desired or willed something to happen in his moral law, his will of command, but humans sinfully did not fulfill that or did not obey that. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus says this, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so God, Jesus here, is telling us that there is a revealed moral will of God that we are to obey. And so the first way that God wills in the scripture is what we would call his will of command or his moral will. And this is God's desire, God's will, God's wish for humanity as revealed in his commands in scripture. It's very clearly seen It's not surprising. It's not secret. It's in plain black and white. You can look throughout the scripture and see what God wills to happen. But there is another will of God that's distinct from his moral will, and this is oftentimes called his sovereign will or his will of decree. This is the secret will of God that only God knows. In his providence and in his sovereignty and with his invisible hand of power, he is working out all things in accordance to the counsel of his will. And oftentimes, we are not privy to this. We don't know what God is doing in his sovereign will. He's kept that from us. We we don't see how God is working out all those things, but we do know that he is. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Even in this passage of scripture, Deuteronomy 29.29, we see the two wills of God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. What are the secret things? Well, the secret things are his will of decree, his sovereign will, the the will that God has that we oftentimes don't see, we don't know, but God is working out all things according to the counsel of his decree that he, he established in eternity past. But Moses also says in the same passage of scripture, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, there's a moral law that has been revealed to us in the scriptures. So even in that passage of scripture in Deuteronomy 29, 29, we see clearly taught two wills of God. There's the secret sovereign will of decree. The secret things belong to the Lord. The things that only God knows that he's decreed. And then there's the revealed will of God that have been given to us so that we may obey his moral law. Now, the question we've got to ask then is, is God absolutely sovereign over all things? And does God sovereignly decree things in eternity past to happen. How do we define this sovereign will of decree? Well, let me give you some passages of scripture that teach God sovereignly decrees all things to happen. Psalm 33, 8-11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generation. The Lord has a counsel. The Lord has a plan. And it says here, people may have plans. The nations may have plans. We may have things that we want to do, but God ultimately can override those. God has an eternal decree, and God is always going to get what he wants. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plan of his heart to all generations. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth 
in the seas and all the deeps. In other words, there is no external force in the universe that's compelling God to do anything. God is alone acting according to his nature, doing what he pleases. So God is not obligated to us. God is not commanded by us. God does not... Um, is not beholden to us. He does what he pleases. I remember a story that um, a, a pastor friend of mine told that he was visiting a church, and it was a church of a, of a really different type of, of denomination. It was more, more of a word-faith type church, and I guess he was a guest there, and it was the pastoral prayer, and the pastor was, was praying to God, and basically the words that this pastor was praying in his pastoral prayer was, Lord, I command you to do this. Lord, I command you, and he kept using this terminology in his prayer, Lord, I command you, and my, my pastor friend said he, he looked up during the prayer to see if that pastor was still alive, if he had been, if he'd been smitten on the spot, on the site right there because in his praying he was commanding God to do some things. Scripture nowhere knows of humans commanding God or that God is even obligated to do what we want. The Lord does what he pleases. Proverbs 16:14. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now this may be a troubling passage for you. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Now, everything, and we'll get to this in just a moment, even including evil, even the wicked people, God has made everything for its purpose. In other words, there's no purposeless evil. There's nothing in the universe that's without purpose. God has decreed everything for a purpose. Now, we may not know what that purpose is. That's the secret sovereign will of God, his will of decree. But clearly this passage says that God is the creator and he's created everything or he's made everything for his intended purpose. Proverbs 16:33 The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Uh, this talks about maybe when you go to Las Vegas or whatever and you, and you roll the dice, uh, you, you play a game where the dice is even cast. And this is talking about how even God ordains that. Every decision is is from the Lord. In other words, God meticulously, and that's a word that some people don't like, the meticulous providence of God. They they don't like the word meticulous because it sounds like God is in control of everything. And, and I think the Bible teaches that, that God is meticulously, sovereignly in control of all things, having a sovereign decree. Every decision is from the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 19.21. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Again, this teaches that God has a purpose, a sovereign purpose. Now that could also be his moral decree, his purposes, or his sovereign decree, but either way, men are going to make plans. There are plans in the mind of a man. You may plan something. You may want to do something. You may desire to do something, but in the end, it's God's sovereign plan or God's sovereign purpose is going to stand. And what I want you to understand is that all the word purpose, the word purpose or decree, or, or God does what he pleases, the Bible is very clear that God has a sovereign decree. God has a sovereign purpose. God has a sovereign design for everything that happens. Isaiah fourteen twenty seven, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Again, the Lord of hosts has purposed. God has purposed something. God has decreed. God has decided something. And the question, the rhetorical question is, well, who will annul it? Who will stop it? Who will cancel it? And the answer is nobody. His hand is stretched out, meaning God is going to act in his sovereignty. And who's going to turn back God's hand? Who's going to stop God from acting in his purposes? Isaiah 29:16 You turn things upside down shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker he did not make me or the thing formed say of him who formed it he has no understanding this is an imagery that Isaiah is using of the potter and the clay God is the sovereign potter he fashions he forms us as his creation and Isaiah is saying, you're turning things upside down. You're acting like you're the creator. You're acting like you're in charge. You, you can't do that. God is the one who's sovereignly in charge. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old. 
For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. If there's one passage in the Bible that teaches the meticulous sovereignty of God, the, the, the sovereign decree of God, this has to be it. Basically, if you go back to Isaiah, in, in the stretch of passages between Isaiah, basically Isaiah 40 to probably 47, what God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord God, is doing is he's bringing the idols on trial. He's bringing these deaf, dumb, mute, wooden, and, and clay, and, and, and iron, and silver, metal idols on trial and basically saying, listen, can you be the creator? Can, do you know the future? Does your counsel stand? And, and obviously, it's almost comical because all these idols can't do that. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a comical section where you the same idol that you expect to tell the future, you actually cut down and use for firewood. And God says here, I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient thing, times things not yet done. So there's a decree of God of things that have not even happened yet that God has decreed saying my counsel shall stand. Meaning that counsel, that decree is going to stand. There's nothing that can come in the way of that. God's going to accomplish all of his purpose. And again, there's the word purpose. God has a purpose. God has a decree. God has a sovereign plan that he has ordained in eternity past that will come to pass. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, he, speaking of God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God is even sovereign over governments. He's sovereign over the seasons. He's sovereign over uh, political structures. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom. Uh, Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Again, do you not see the purpose of God? He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That Basically, when you look at the Old Testament, there's this whole concept of God being Lord of heaven and earth. He wasn't just a tribal deity over Israel, but God is Lord over all of heaven and over all of earth. And it says that he's going to do according to his will. And nobody can say to him, God, what have you done? Why have you done that? You weren't supposed to do that. Uh, we can't stay his hand. We can't stop his hand. God is going to sovereignly accomplish all of his purposes. And then in Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Again, look at the wording there. Purpose, decree. God has purposed something. And it can't be thwarted in the sense it can't be stopped. It can't be stymied. God has decreed an eternity past his plan, his purpose, his will of decree, and no one can stop it. Now let's look in the New Testament in Ephesians 1.11. Paul says, In him, that's Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance to the counsel of his will. Again, do you see the words there? Purpose, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Every single thing that happens. Every single thing that is going to happen. Every single thing that has happened. God has worked it out according to his purpose, according to the counsel of his will. You almost have to have a predisposition against this meticulous sovereignty to not see it clearly taught upon the Bible. Now, it's an issue we have to handle. God has a moral will that he has clearly revealed to us that we are to obey, and that will is oftentimes not obeyed. So in a sense, the moral will of God can be in a sense, stymied or frustrated in the sense that people do not obey the moral will of God. But on the same token, there is a sovereign will of God. There's his will of decree that will not be stymied. It will not be frustrated. God will accomplish that will infallibly. So if God is absolutely sovereign over all things, as we've just seen, and he desires all people to be saved, as we've seen, in those two passages, and yet not all people are saved, 
then is God's will somehow frustrated? Or does God actually have two wills? And again, the answer is yes. Does God desire all people to be saved? We have to say yes, because we have two passages of Scripture that teach that God desires all people to be saved. This is his desire. But we know it doesn't happen. There are people in hell right now today that are not saved. There are people today that will live and die that aren't saved. So God's will is somehow overpowered by a higher authority. Something has, quote-unquote, thwarted God's will. Because if God desires all people to be saved, and yet not all people are saved, then in a sense you can say, well, God's will has not been accomplished. So let's look at both sides of the argument. Because Arminians will argue that there are two wills in God. Calvinists will argue there are two wills in God. The question is not whether there are two wills. The question is, what is that one thing that overarches or comes higher than God's desire for all people to be saved? So let me give you the Arminian view. The Arminian view is that human free will is that one power in the universe that can thwart God's will. In other words, God has a desire, God has a will for all people to be saved. But he's left it up to humans to determine their future, and thus humans have the final say in whether they are going to be saved or not by trusting in Christ, and therefore human freedom is higher or more powerful than God's desire for all people to be saved. The other view is that there is another power in the universe, and that is God's sovereignty in where he has decided not to save everybody. Now, the fact is, is that something doesn't happen that God wills. The one possibility is that God will not save all, even though he's willing to save all, because there's something else that he wills more, which would be lost if he exerted his sovereign power to save all. You see, the difference between Calvinists and Arminians is not whether there are two wills in God, but what they say the higher commitment is. What does God will more than saving all? If God desires to save all, and not all are saved, then there must be something higher that prevents the salvation of all people. The answer by the Arminian is human self-determination and free will. God values... God could save all people. And God desires for all people to be saved, but the one thing he values is humans to be able to choose him, so God has given humans ultimate freedom to be able to choose to thwart his will in that the reason that all people aren't saved is because they've chosen not to be saved. The other answer, which I would believe is the biblical answer, is that the greater value is the manifestation of the full range of God's glory in both his mercy and love as well as his holiness and wrath and justice so that he gets all the credit in salvation. Now, this brings up a huge question. Again, I'm saying we're going on the deep end of the pool, and you may need to go back and listen to some of these arguments. I'm trying to expose you to some theological issues that have been debated for centuries and are currently debated right now, but we have to ask another question. We've looked at, okay, God desires all people to be saved, not all people are saved. Then why not aren't all people saved? The Arminian answer is not all people are saved because God has given people free will. The Calvinist is not all people are saved because God has chosen not to save all people in his sovereignty. But let me ask you another question, a huge question. If God is sovereign over all things, and God decrees all things as we've just seen, God has a purpose, God has a plan, it's not going to be stopped, then the ultimate question is, well, then how do we handle sin? Is God the author of sin? Are people actually free, or are they doing just what God has decreed they would do? And if people do something against God's will, and God decreed that they would do that, and then God holds them accountable and punishes them for doing something against His will, yet He decreed it, then is not God somehow being unjust or unfair for punishing people for something that he decreed them to do? This is a deep question. The Bible teaches that God is holy, God is righteous. 
You know, Isaiah 6, 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible teaches that God is holy, God is merciful, God is just, in Him is no darkness at all. As a matter of fact, in the, in the book of James, James gives us some information about the way God relates to His creation. In James 1.13, God says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But when each person is tempted, when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it was conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. So God is never the author of sin, but in the sense, he ordains sin to take place as a part of his plan. Okay, are you, are you tracking with me? Does the Bible actually teach that God actually decreed or ordained or purposed something to happen that goes against his moral will? In other words, can God actually have two wills working at the same time? Again, God has a sovereign, secret will of decree that he's going to accomplish his purposes no matter what. God also has a moral will, a revealed will, obviously in the Ten Commandments and other places in the Scriptures that, that, that he also desires. So, let me establish a truth here that you need to struggle with. Does God often decree or purpose things that he actually hates, or let me ask it another way, does God ever will something to happen that goes against his moral law? And we have to say yes. The Bible teaches that God often decrees things in his secret sovereignty that it goes against his moral will. Now this may be very confusing to you. Why in the world would God decree something that goes against his moral law? Because it seems to be that God would not decree anything that goes against his moral law because his moral law is something that has to be upheld. And the answer is, the Bible never fully gives us an explanation as to why God does it. So we have to come with some humility to the scriptures and be silent where the Bible's silent. But we have a litany of scriptures to show that God ordains or decrees that which he hates. God ordains and decrees sovereignly that which goes against his moral will. And the only answer we can say is that God is working out all things in accordance to his will. And at the end of the day, it's what brings him the most glory and accomplishes his purposes. We may not like it. We may not understand it. And God has not given us exhaustive knowledge about this in the Bible. Remember, Deuteronomy 29, 29, there's some secret things that belong to God. God has not given us an exhaustive teaching about this concept. And so we don't know everything there is to know about this concept, but we do have some verses that teach that God decrees things that he hates. So let's just look at some of these. Does God hate sin? Yes. Does God hate direct disobedience against his word? Yes. You'd have to say... God's moral law is to be obeyed. And when you break God's moral law, when you break God's command, it's something that goes against his will. But yet, did not God decree the fall of Adam and Eve into sin? Now, some people would say, well, you know, this was an accident. This was a surprise. God created Adam and Eve. He gave them freedom. He wasn't really sure what they were going to do. He was kind of, it was an experiment to see if his creation would follow him. God gave him the command not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam disobeyed and it caught God off guard. God was surprised. Question. Out of all those verses that we just looked at, could the fall ever taken God off surprise? Could the fall be something that, that was a, that was something that, that surprised God. Absolutely not. God decreed the fall. Now, you may say, well, why did God ordain the fall? Why did God decree the fall? We're never told in the Bible why God did that. But we do know that Jesus, the Bible says Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. So in God's mind, if Jesus was slain before the foundation, before the world was even created, that, that Jesus was going to be dying on the cross and there was going to be sin in the world. 
to which Jesus would need to come and be a Savior to die. So the only answer I can give you that in that God ordaining or decreeing the fall is that God, in His sovereignty, decided to display the full range of His glorious attributes in both mercy and judgment. That's an answer the Bible doesn't give us, but we see that God had to decree the fall because he works out all things according to the counsel of his will. And I'm not willing to concede the fact that God is ever surprised. God is not a God who's in heaven passively taking in knowledge and wondering what's happening. Uh, Some people like open theists would say that God doesn't know the future. God doesn't know possibilities. There's a million different contingencies out there, and you could choose a million different ways, and God really doesn't know the potential that you're going to choose until he absolutely he sees it happen. And they would say, outside of time, God in eternity past looked down through the corridors of time and saw what you would do, but even then, God can be surprised. I do not believe the Bible teaches that, based upon all those scriptures that we just looked at. Now, let's look at some other examples. Does God hate jealousy? Absolutely. It's in the Ten Commandments. Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Does God hate jealousy? murder. Yes, it's in the Bible. Thou shalt not murder. Does God hate lying? Absolutely, it's in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness. So God hates jealousy. God hates murder. God hates lying. Okay, let's look at Genesis 45 with the story of Joseph. What do you know about the story of Joseph? If you go back to Genesis in the Joseph narrative, his brothers sold him into slavery left him for dead, and basically committed treason and attempted murder against their brother. All wicked acts, all things that were against God's moral law. But yet, listen to how Joseph describes that event. He's revealing himself to his brothers. It's finally that moment of truth where he is exposing himself. They're they're before him as the prime minister. They're not sure who it is. But then look at verse 4, Genesis 45, 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Okay, confusing. What does Joseph say? You sold me into slavery, brothers. You are accountable. You are guilty. I'm not downplaying your sin. You are guilty. You sold me into slavery. You committed attempted murder. You lied about it to our father. You were jealous. You did this. But in the same breath, Joseph says, it was not you who did this. It was God. Three times he says, God sent me before you. God sent me before you. It was not you who did this. God did it. So the question is, well, who did it? Did Joseph's brothers do it, or did God do it? And the answer is yes. Joseph's brothers acted freely. God did not make them sell Joseph into slavery. They acted out of their own nature. They freely hated Joseph. They freely attempted to murder Joseph, and they betrayed Joseph and sold him into slavery, and they will be accountable for that sin. Those were real choices made by real people. But at the same time, God sent Joseph ahead. Did God act freely? Yes. Did Joseph's brothers make God do what he did? No. So Joseph's brothers acted freely. God acted freely. But at the end of the day, God's sovereign purpose is accomplished. So in this story, we see God ordaining or decreeing Joseph being sold into slavery as a means to further his purposes. So God is ordaining or decreeing something that he hates. God hates the selling of slavery. God hates attempted murder. It goes against God's moral law. So in God's moral law, he hates those things, but yet he decreed that the brothers would violate his moral law to serve a greater purpose in sending Joseph ahead for the salvation of the Israelites and and Egyptians through the famine. So God ordains something to happen that goes against his moral law. Now, at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 50, verse 20, Jacob, their father, is dead. 
Joseph is now with his brothers, and his brothers are afraid. They're thinking, okay, now that, that daddy's dead, uh, we, we may be getting it here because uh, there, there may be some revenge that Joseph is going to exact upon us now that, that Jacob's out of the picture. But in Genesis 50, 20, listen to the words of Joseph. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Again, we see two things going on in this passage of Scripture. You meant evil. You meant evil. He Again, he's implicating the brothers. He's not downplaying their sin. He's saying, you have sinned. You have sinned against me. You meant evil. Now, let's look at that Hebrew word meant. It does not mean God, they, you know, used. The word in the Hebrew means to devise to plan, to strategize. In other words, you could translate it, brothers, you devised this plan. You planned it, you purposed it, you strategized it, you did this. But notice in the same breath what Joseph says. But God meant it, same Hebrew word, for good. God meant it for good. It doesn't say God used your evil. Some people would say God allowed it to happen. God used it after the fact. The brothers did evil, but then after the fact, God came in and kind of reacted to their evil and and used it for good. That's not the way to read the Hebrew text. God devised, God planned, God strategized their evil to bring about good. So again, you see God strategizing, God purposing evil, the evil of their brothers, to bring about good. Now, did God do the evil? No. The brothers did the evil, and they're accountable for the evil, but they did according to what God's purpose was. And so again, we may not fully understand this, but there's a moral law. There's a moral will of God, His will of command. But God ordains in His will of decree that that will of command be violated in order to bring about a greater good. And so in the story of Joseph, you see God actually ordaining what he hates to bring about what he loves, the salvation of people. Let's go to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 with Pharaoh. In Exodus 4, 21, listen to what the Lord said to Moses. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This is the first time we hear about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and who's going to do it? God will harden his heart so that, what's the purpose? He will not let the people go. Okay, so is it God's will for his people to go? Yes. Is it God's will for his people to be in slavery? Is slavery morally wrong? Yes. Are the Egyptian taskmasters morally wrong for keeping the Israelites in slavery? Yes. But notice what God says here. It was God's purpose, God's moral will, that Pharaoh would let God's people go from bondage and worship in the wilderness. But yet God in his sovereignty said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't do what I will. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So which is it? Does God want the people to go? Yes. Morally, God wants the people to go. But yet in his sovereign will, he's saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let you go. And again, you have to say, well, why does God do this? Well, to show the full range of his attributes. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. So Moses goes and says, Hey, Pharaoh, it's God's moral will that you let the people go. But in God's sovereign will, he's hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not do what God wanted him to do. Again, you see both these things happening. In Isaiah chapter 10, you've got another example. And I think it's important as we look at these passages of Scripture for you to read your Bible. 
uh, especially the Old Testament. I think a lot of Christians are afraid of the Old Testament. They get bogged down in the Old Testament. They don't quite understand the Old Testament. The New Testament's easier to understand. It's a little bit, it flows a little bit easier. It's, it's more accessible. Uh, the ancient Hebrew culture, we're so far removed and we don't quite understand what's going on there. Uh, that's why a Bible reading plan where you can read through the Bible in a year is so important so you can be exposed to the teachings of the Old Testament. But Isaiah chapter 10 Verses 5 through 15, you've got God giving a decree to the Assyrians. So let's, let's read this. Ah, Assyria, that's a nation. The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I commanded him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend... And his heart does not sink, so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karmakish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand is reached to the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Now let's just stop right there. God in his sovereign decree, is sending the nation of Assyria, he's commanding them to go plunder, to go destroy Israel. And God decrees it. God says, Assyria, I'm raising you up. I'm sending you to go punish, to go against Israel, because Israel's been disobedient. And then they're acting out of the wickedness of their own heart. It's, it's in their nature. The Assyrians are brutal. God doesn't have to make them brutal. God doesn't have to make them sinful. Out of their own nature as, as people, they're a brutal nation and they, it's in their heart to go destroy. But God is the one that sends them to do that. God sends them to do what he, in his sovereign decree, has commanded them to do. And, and God sends them to do that. Now, let's keep reading because then it gets even more confusing. <laughs> Verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that was that moved a wing or opened the mouth or or chirped, so shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. What's going on here? God is going to punish Assyria for doing what God decreed them to do. Now wait a minute, you stop and think, well wait a minute. If God decreed them to do it, and they did it, then why is he punishing them for doing what he decreed to do? The Bible doesn't give an answer, but we have it here in black and white. God's sovereign decree was for Assyria to go plunder Israel. They acted freely out of their own nature to do what God had decreed them to do. They are the ones that did the evil. God did not do the evil. God decreed for them to do the evil against Israel to plunder them. They act freely out of their own nature to go do that. But at the end of the day, God turns around and punishes them for acting that way. Now, you may not like that. We may not understand that. But you've got an example here of God decreeing, God sending Assyria to do something sinful, to go against his people as an act of judgment, and yet God turns around and punishes them for the sin that he ordained them to commit. You've got to struggle with that. It's in the book of Isaiah right here. Again, you may not understand it, and God has not exhaustively given us all the teaching on that, but you have God decreeing for people to go do evil and then to punish them for the evil that God decreed them. And you may say, well, that's unjust. That's unfair. Why would God punish them for the evil that he decreed them to do? I don't know the answer to that. All I can say is that God did it, and God has a sovereign right to do it. Well, in Jeremiah 25, let's, let's look over at Jeremiah. Let's just turn over to Jeremiah 25. This is about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, Babylon uh, capturing uh, Israel and taking them into 
captivity into exile. Uh, Jeremiah 25, verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send forth all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones in the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruined and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then, after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. We see it again. God raises up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army to go destroy Jerusalem and take them into exile. It says there, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land. God is raising up Nebuchadnezzar. God is raising up Babylon. God is ordaining that Babylon go to Israel to attack them, burn down uh, actually the southern kingdom of Judah, to burn down the wall of Jerusalem, to ransack the temple, to cart off the inhabitants of Jerusalem to 70 years of Babylonian captivity. God ordained it. God set up Nebuchadnezzar to do that. God said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be my instrument, my servant to go do this. But then afterwards, God says, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to punish you, Babylon. Then after 70 years completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation for their iniquities, declares the Lord. Well, why is God punishing them for something that he ordained for them to do? Again, we see the same thing. Is God responsible for the evil? No. Babylon acted out of their own nature to do evil, but it was God's ordained decree. So God ordains or decrees something he hates in order to bring about his purposes. And you may again say, well, that's not fair. Why would God ordain Nebuchadnezzar? Why would God ordain Babylon to go take over Israel and take them into captivity and then turn around and punish them for something he ordained? Again, the Bible doesn't answer that, but again, we have another example. God oftentimes decrees or ordains things that he hates in order to bring about his sovereign purposes. Does God hate betrayal? Does God hate conspiracy? Yes. What about Judas? What about Judas? Let's look at Luke 22. Luke 22, 21 and 22. Jesus makes a statement here about Judas. He says... But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. What's been determined? It's been determined that Judas would betray Jesus. God ordained, God determined in eternity past that Judas would betray Jesus to bring about the crucifixion. And so God, again, determines or ordains something he hates. Does God hate the betrayal of his own son, Jesus? Yes. Does God hate the lying and conspiracy and duplicity of Judas? Yes. But God determined it and ordained that it would happen. Now, did God do the sin? No. Judas did the sin. Judas is responsible for it. But did God ordain or decree that that sin would take place? Yes. Now, one of the best passages of Scripture that really ties this all together is in the book of Acts. Now, the early church understood this. The early church had no problem with this. In their prayers and Peter's preaching, they see this happening. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And notice that the strong language he uses to describe the cross. And let's just stop. Does God hate murder? Yes. Does God hate conspiracy? Yes. Does God hate treachery against an innocent man? Yes. But yet, did God predestine and plan for all this to take place? Yes. God predestined and ordained what he hates. 
in order to accomplish the greater good. And in this case, the cross. Let's look at Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, who's responsible for killing Jesus? You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You, Jews, Peter's speaking to the Jews here. Jews, you had the kangaroo court. You're the one that brought up these trumped up charges. You are the ones responsible for killing Jesus. You're lawless men. You're accountable. You're responsible. Who killed Jesus? You did. But in the same breath, Jesus, or Peter says, this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was the definite plan of God. It was God's definite plan. Not some haphazard afterthought. It was God's definite plan in eternity past. It was part of his eternal decree that Jesus would die at the hands of lawless men. So God decreed, God definitely planned what he hated. That lawless men would betray Jesus to bring about a greater good. That's Peter's sermon in Pentecost. Let's listen to the early church prayer. They're praying to God. They're they're being persecuted. They're praying for boldness. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They're they're praying here, and they mention four groups of people, or four, four individuals here. Herod. Herod. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples. Well, Herod, does God hate pride? Yes, but God ordained Herod to crucify Jesus. Does God hate expediency and cowardice? Yes, but God ordained Pilate to crucify Jesus. Does God hate false testimony and trumped up charges? Yes, but he ordained the Jews to crucify Jesus. Does God hate brutality and insults? Yes, but he ordained the Gentiles, the Romans, to nail them to the cross. Who's responsible for killing Jesus? Well, there's a list here. Herod's responsible and he will be accountable. Pontius Pilate's responsible and he will be accountable. The Gentiles are responsible and they will be accountable. The peoples of Israel are responsible and accountable. But they did what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. God predestined, God planned, God ordained sin. You may again have a problem with that, but God ordained it. God planned it. Now, they carried it out by their own nature. They carried it out freely, but it was ordained by God. And so the cross is the greatest display of God ordaining what he hates to bring about a greater good for the full display of his glory. God predestined the cross to take place. So in a sense, you could say, well, who killed Jesus? God did. It was God's predestined plan to kill Jesus on the cross. Who carried it out? Individuals who are responsible. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel. They are accountable. They're responsible. But they're doing what God predestined, what God ordained, what God had planned to take place. So again, God ordains or plans something that he hates, something that goes against his moral will to bring about a greater good. Now let's go finally to Revelation chapter 17. At the end of the Bible, let's just see one more example of this very, very deep, and again, I hope you're not, you're tracking with me here. In Revelation 17, and I'm not going to get into all of the eschatological uh, descriptions of all this stuff. I'm just going to read this and make a point. Um, in verse 16, the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast. They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now, this is the whole idea here that God is ordaining or willing the ten kings, whatever, however you view that, to align with the beast and to go against the, 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 false, the, the, the Babylon, the, the, the prostitute of Babylon. God put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. 
God put it in their hearts to align with evil, and God's going to punish them for that. No matter how you look at this, God is ordaining, or God is putting in the hearts of evil people to do evil, and they will be accountable. So again, you've got God ordaining or planning evil. Now again, we have to be very careful. Those people that carry out the evil are accountable. They freely did it. They will be responsible. God is never the author of sin, but God ordains and decrees sin, and people carry out sinful actions so that in the end, God's purposes will be fulfilled. So so we see that God has two wills. He's got a will of command. It's clearly expressed in his moral law, his word. That's oftentimes disobeyed. It's oftentimes not fulfilled. People disobey God's moral law all the time. But also there's a will of decree, God's sovereign decree that he accomplishes behind the scenes. He accomplishes according to his own purposes. We don't fully understand it. And sometimes, as we've seen, God sovereignly decrees what goes directly against what he's commanded in his will of command or law to bring about the full display of his glory, and especially in the cross. Now, what are the implications of this? This is oftentimes called compatibilism. It's just a theological term, compatibilism. What is compatibilism? It's basically the idea that God's absolute sovereignty is compatible with human responsibility. In other words, it's the Bible's way of explaining the tension between God's sovereignty and human freedom. How can humans act freely, and yet, at the same time, God sovereignly ordain His plan to come about? I think the Westminster Confession of Faith gives probably the greatest definition. Uh, Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. It's important. It's unchangeable. It's free. God sovereignly ordains everything that has come to pass. So there's nothing that's happened in history or will happen that God did not freely and unchangeably ordain. But then they go on to explain that. Again, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yet, so as thereby neither God is the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Again, there's secondary causes. So here's the paradox of compatibilism. God is absolutely sovereign, and yet humans have real freedom and responsible for their actions. Now, let me give you some applications. Let me give you some implications for this. This is deep water. There's a lot of things that that you're probably scratching your head and wondering, why why is Sean spending so much time talking about this? Uh, it's, It's important from time to time for us to go into the deep end of the pool to ask these deep questions. But again, the question is, okay, well, how does this apply to me? Where does the rubber meet the road? What's the big deal? Well, here's number one. God did not turn a blind eye to suffering in the world but actually came in the flesh when Jesus was born in Bethlehem to experience the fullness of human evil. In other words, this whole answer to evil and suffering is only answered in Christianity. You see, in other world religions, they really have no answer for suffering. In Buddhism, suffering is just an illusion. It's, it's not real. Your best hope is to hopefully do good enough so that you have a good enough karma so that when you're reincarnated, the next time you come around, you won't have to suffer as much. It's the same in Hinduism. No other world religion has God coming in the flesh to plunge himself right into the thick of human suffering to relate to his creation and actually deal with suffering himself. And in the cross, what wicked men intended for the greatest evil, God intended for the greatest good. Again, we've looked at that of those people being responsible for nailing Jesus to the cross, but God preordaining that for the greatest good. But here's where it gets real personal. Okay, You are the cause of much evil in this world. You and I both. And God has every right to punish you and me, but instead shows merciful patience. You know, oftentimes I'm asked, why, why doesn't God just end all the suffering and evil in the world? Why doesn't God just stop it? And I say, you don't want that. If he were to destroy every, uh, the evil in the world, he would have to sh- destroy every single person on the planet Earth who's the cause of evil. And that's the only way to do it. 
He did it once in the flood. 1 Timothy 1, 15-16 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me the foremost Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. You know, we are the worst of sinners. And yes, God did ordain the fall. God decreed the fall. And and we act simply out of our own nature. But the beauty of the gospel is that even as worst, really, really bad sinners that we are, we can receive Jesus' perfect patience in salvation. And the ultimate hope that we have, because God has ordained all things to happen, and God has a sovereign decree, here's what we look forward to. On that final day, King Jesus will put an end to evil once and for all by making all things new. What does Revelation 21, 4-5 say? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus is making all things new. According to God's sovereign decree, that's the end. The new heavens and the new earth where we receive our glorified body fully redeemed in the presence of Christ, the Lamb, for eternity. So what does this ultimately mean for you? This means that there is a purpose for the suffering that you're going through right now and and God is intending it for good. It means that whatever you're going through is not some random throwing of the dice in the universe or some type of blind fate or fatalism or some type of cosmic joke that, that God is playing up in heaven where he's laughing at his children. What it means is that because God is sovereign, because he's the potter and we're the clay, in his sovereign decree, in time, he's working out your sanctification. He's shaping you, he's molding you, he's fashioning you to be more like Jesus. His ultimate goal is for you to be holy, to look more like Jesus. And evil people will come and do evil things and they'll be responsible for that evil. And there's going to be suffering that you will suffer from time to time. But yet behind it all, we have to believe that God is orchestrating something great to come out of it for his children, for his glory. And so, is God absolutely sovereign? Yes. Is God absolutely loving? Yes. Are people absolutely responsible for their actions and sins? Yes. Does God absolutely work out all things for his good? Yes. We may not understand it. Again, we don't comprehensively know all there is to know about God. He hasn't chosen to reveal that to us. We don't have exhaustive knowledge about all of these issues. But what we can do is say, okay, go back to Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to God. There's some secret things. There's some sovereign things. God's decree that we will never fully understand. But then there's some things that he's revealed to us. And when we see those things revealed, when we see these things taught in scripture, we may not like them. We may not understand them, but we've got to accept them. We've got to bow to them. We've got to understand them. And ultimately, it should lead us to worship. It should not lead us to fear. It should not lead us to anger. It should not lead us to frustration, but it should lead us to worship because we worship a sovereign God who's working out all things for his glory. Do you want a God that doesn't work out all things for his glory? Do you want a God that's surprised? Do you want a God whose plans can be frustrated? Do you want a God who who isn't sure in the end what's going to happen? Or do you want a God who works out all things according to the counsel of his will? And if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you are his child, and he's doing great things for you to bring about your good and his glory. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I know this has been a little difficult, and you may have to go back and, and really wrestle with this, but I wanted to expose you to some, some thoughts and some theology that maybe you've never been experienced or exposed to in the past, and I pray that you, that you understand this and that the Holy Spirit gives you guidance as you search these things. If you have any questions about these things, please contact me through email on my website, seancole.net. Uh, you can go there, and it has all my contact information. I'd love to hear from you. Again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope you have a blessed day, and um, wherever you are and wherever you're listening and wherever your travels go, I pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. Again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity.